Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Let me add my congratulations to the class of 2021, whether from a local high school, from Davidson College, from any college, from trade school, whatever the... Congratulations to the class of 2021. And next year, we're going to have two. The class of 2020 and 2022 are all graduating next year at Davidson. So I'm very excited about that. So we'll have an even bigger blowout extravaganza than we just had. As I said, I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here, and it's always good to be together as a church family in the Y and online, always good to worship together. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. As we look to the center of these circles, we ask ourselves, what is it that's at the center of my life? What is it that everything in my life revolves around? Jesus Christ says he wants to be in the center of our lives. And if we invite him there, that we'll experience real life, both abundant life on earth and everlasting life after earth. Today, we continue in our series of sermons, a year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We're looking at the big picture of the Bible, that since the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world. He invites you and me to come and find our place in it. And as a church, we have a lot of resources available to you to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating. We send those out in our weekly email, and also you can find those online. There's reading plans, there's videos, just designed to help you better understand the Bible. Today, we start the story with a capital S, volume four, volume four. We are at volume four of eight. We have come a long way, and we still have a long way to go. Volume 4, as you might guess by the name, focuses on kings and worship. Volume 4 focuses on God's people becoming an official kingdom. And some of the books that came out of the lives of these kings, kings like King David, King Solomon, some of the books that they wrote and inspired, like the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs. If you have not been here before, let me quickly summarize the first three volumes of the story with a capital S. If you sleep through this part of the service, let me summarize, especially if you're at home on your couch. I know that's tempting. In the first three volumes... We've seen God create the world. We've seen God create humanity in his own image. And yet humanity and all of creation was lured into rebelling against God. But God made an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise to Abraham and Sarah and to their descendants to be their God and that they would be his people. We watched that family grow. It grew and grew and grew so large that in fact it became a people. And so that people reaffirmed the covenant at Mount Sinai. They reaffirmed their covenant with God. And now what we saw in volume three was that that people settled in the land that God had promised to them, creatively called the promised land. They have put down roots and a place from which to shine God's hope to a hurting world. And in the promised land, they make one more transition. They become a kingdom. And so God's, or Abraham and Sarah's family became the Hebrew people, become the kingdom of Israel, a family, a people, now a kingdom. Very similar with Jesus, that as a follower of Jesus, or if today you become, in the future you become a follower of Jesus, Jesus invites you, welcomes you into his family, his people, his kingdom. 
family, people, kingdom. You don't have to walk alone, alone through this life. So the beginning of volume four is about the transition into becoming the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. There are four names you need to remember to remember the transition to the kingdom. And those names are Hannah, Samuel, Saul, David. Those names are Hannah, Samuel, Saul, David. You might want to remember that. Or the people beside you will think you forgot it. God's people have arrived in the promised land. And they are led by Joshua. Moses' successor is Joshua. After Joshua dies, God's people are led for around 300 years by military leaders. Last week, we learned that those military leaders were called judges. Very good. The Bible says this at the end of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. There's a double meaning. They had no earthly king, but they had no heavenly king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Does this hit you a little between the eyes? At some point, we have all lived that verse. In those days, Michael had no king. He did as he saw fit. In those days, you, blank, fill in the blank, had no king. You did as you saw fit. Some of us still live that verse today. We have no king. We do as we see fit. There's this old story of a, 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 it's a class of children behaving very poorly, and the teacher comes in and says, what is wrong with you guys? And one of the children says, we're being bad, and we don't know how to stop. At some point, we have all lived that quote. <laughs> Some of us might be living that quote today. We need a king. We need a king with a capital K to redefine our value and to redefine our purpose, to redefine other people's values, to remind us and redefine the importance of love. The people need a king with a capital K, but they ask for a king with a lowercase k. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Believe it or not, there's never been a book on diplomacy written about these verses. This is not really a compliment sandwich. You are old, your kids are rotten, give us a king. This gets us back to the four names. The four names were Hannah. Samuel, Saul, David. Very good. Hannah is a woman who asks God for a son. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah asks God for a son. This is one of the deep desires of her heart. And if God will give her this child, she will dedicate that child to God's service. Well, God does give her a son. They name the son Samuel, and Hannah follows through because Hannah has a king with a capital K, and she worships him when he doesn't give her what she wants and when he gives her exactly what she wants. And both of those can be a challenge. Samuel grows up to be a trusted spiritual leader of God's people. So trusted, in fact, that towards the end of his life, the people are asking him to sort of broker the deal between them and God to get this king. 
So the passage, uh, chapter 8, continues. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So God tells Samuel, listen to the people. Give the people what they're asking for. This is not the first or the last time God would do that. Give people what they ask for, even if it's not what God wanted. He tells them to give the people what they want, but also acknowledges that this is the people's rejection of him as their king with a capital K. So Samuel goes and finds the third name, Saul, and anoints him the king of Israel. And it works really well for a hot minute. as a technical scientific term. But at the end of that hot minute, everybody realizes Saul is prideful. He himself is a king without a king, with a capital K, a king without a king. And so ultimately, God reveals to Samuel that Saul and his descendants, his lineage, will not be the king of Israel. This leads Samuel to go off to anoint Israel's next king, even though Saul still wears the crown. Hmm, I wonder if this will be a source of any future contention. Hmm. And God leads him to a man named Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz from last week. And God reveals to Samuel that one of Jesse's sons is Saul's successor, one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel invites Jesse and all of his sons to come. God will confirm to Samuel which of the sons it is. And so Samuel looks at each of the seven sons that Jesse brought. And for each one, God says, nope, it's not that one. Hmm. So 1 Samuel 16 says, so he asked, he is Samuel, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Okay, focus, Jesse. Focus. Bring all your sons to Samuel. One of them is going to be the next king. It seems that Jesse is so convinced it's not his youngest son, he doesn't even bother to bring him. He takes care of the sheep so the seven likely candidates can come. Talk about a vote of confidence. The counselors in the congregation are savory. Like, this is a case study. Well, long story short, God works in a very surprising way. Have you ever seen God work in a very surprising way? That eighth son, the youngest one who was out tending the sheep, is named David. And Saul, Samuel, Samuel anoints him the next king of Israel. Now, David is still young. And instead of being competitive with Saul, David decides he wants to look for reasons to be around Saul. David kind of treats it as a job shadowing program that Saul doesn't know is a job shadowing program. And this is what Macy read for us earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the passage of David and Goliath. It was a defining moment for David. It was a moment where many people realized that they viewed him as their real king, even if Saul still had the crown. But at that time, David was still just tending his family's sheep. That was his job. He was the future king still tending the sheep. 
And so what we're going to watch is David's ascension, David's journey from being a shepherd to being a giant slayer. It's this moment when Israel realizes they want him to be their king. So as we watch David's journey from being a shepherd to being a giant slayer, we're going to see plenty of insights that God might use to shape our own lives. And let's look at those insights together here at the beginning of volume four. The first insight, number one, number one, number, 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 insight, number one. David's journey began at a heart level. David's journey began at a heart level. First Samuel 16 says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. These are the words that God says to Samuel when Samuel is getting ready to anoint the new king. God says, you're going to get hung up on the outside. That's where humans get hung up. But I'm looking at what's going on on the inside. Because Israel needs a king who first and foremost has a king with a capital K. Who first and foremost sees God as his king. So could you describe to me your dream house? Or could you describe to me the ideal church building? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. We will settle for nothing less than the ideal. Well, I take that back. What's true of that? Well, how big is it? What colors are there? What's the material you use? How does it flow? Can you describe for me your dream house or your ideal church? Let, let me just put something that came to mind that I realized. At the top of the list, you need to put steady foundation, solid foundation. Put that right up at the top, because if you don't have that, you could lose the rest of it. So now let me ask you to describe your dream life. What is a life well-lived look like? Let me make the suggestion before you go too far down the list. Put at the very top in big letters, Steady foundation, <laughs> solid foundation, sturdy foundation. Foundations are not a wow factor. Most people don't even think about the foundations. They're not glamorous, and people look at the outward appearance. But a life well lived begins where no one but God can see it. No one but God can see what's happening on the inside. Following Jesus does not begin with a perfect family. It doesn't begin with a Christian uh, religious bumper sticker. It does not begin with uh, reaching out to serve those who are in poverty or giving away money for God's work. Uh, following Jesus does not begin with any external thing. Following Jesus begins in a beautiful interior moment of faith of coming to trust God and trust God's trustworthiness, that God so loves the world, that God so loves you, and that through his sacrificial love, Jesus is inviting you to join into his family, his people, his kingdom. In those days, you didn't have a king, and you did as you saw fit. But now you have a king, a king with a capital K. And David has a king with a capital K. And God sees what's going on on the inside. And it's that relationship with the king, with a capital K, that changed David from the inside out. So David's journey began at a heart level. It began where no one else could see. Sometimes we miss that step as we're building a life. 
Well, David takes a break from tending the family sheep to go visit three of his brothers in the army. This gives him a chance to job shadow Saul. Saul doesn't know it's job shadowing. Chapter 17, verse 23 says, As he, David, was talking with them, his brothers, his friends, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his line and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So here's what David unknowingly stumbled into. David stumbled into, on one side, there's Israel, God's people. On the other side of the Philistines, this is a group of people that, want, that does not worship God. They want to conquer the Israelites. They want to rule over the Israelites. You might see the sticking point. The Israelites and the Philistines decided, instead of all trying to kill each other, why doesn't each side pick out its best warrior? Whoever wins that will be declared the winner. And everybody who loses, the losers will become subjects to the winners. This seems like a sensible plan. Well, then the Philistines play their hand. Their champion is a guy named Goliath. Goliath, according to the Bible, is over six cubits tall. That's tall. I think. I think that's tall. A cubit is a foot and a half, about. So... Goliath is tall, and whether he is a genetic wonder or he had some kind of uh, hormone-induced giantism, we don't know, and Israel did not know. All Israel knew was they were not going to go out and fight him, and Goliath had been trained as a warrior from a young age. In our day, if you're big and tall, people say, do you play basketball? In the ancient world, they said, oh, are you a trained warrior? Goliath had come out so many days in a row threatening to fight any Israelite champion, the whole Israelite army froze in fear at the sight of Goliath. So David looks at this, David looks at his brothers, he looks at his friends, and he says, now wait a minute, isn't anybody going to answer the challenge? This gets us to insight number two. David's journey was shaped through a holy nudge. A holy nudge. So it began at a heart level, that relationship with God, that love and respect and trust of God that no one could see. But then it was shaped by a holy nudge. First Samuel 17, 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. David and Goliath is one of the more memorable passages of the Bible. Even if you have not been to church very much at all in your whole life, you have a fighting chance of having heard of David and Goliath. The thing I often forget about this passage, though, is that this is not David's job. David is not in the army. David did not go looking for a fight. David was responding to a very specific moment. And David knew deep in his heart that something needed to be done. And instead of thinking somebody needs to do something about this, David thought, I need to do something about this. I call that a holy nudge. Like that moment God elbows you in the side and says, hey, let's you and me go take care of this. How do you, how do I grow into the people God wants us to be? How do we begin to to continue to build a a life that honors God, that is is life, truly life? How do we begin to be that? David's life shows us that we have to start where we are. We need to be faithful where we are. Be attentive to where God is leading us where we are. 
Instead of standing on the sidelines and waiting for just the perfect opportunity, we get in the game. We pay attention to the holy nudges God gives us where we are. And we begin to act on them, not to say, oh, that's, I think that's a holy nudge, and, and just keep moving on. But to begin to act on them, to be faithful to them, and to see where God might take you from there. A holy nudge. So as at the end of uh, this past year, it will not surprise me if some of the holy nudges people have been feeling are that, hey, as we get into the summer, as we get into the fall, I need to find a way into community. I need to find a way into a Bible study. I need to find a way into serving. I've been receiving a lot. I need to find a way to get into serving or maybe into leading. I've misleading something. You might feel a holy nudge that there's a specific person you need to reach out to that God has put in your life for a reason or that God has made you part of a group, whether it be a, a workplace, a neighborhood, an organization. God has made you part of something because there's something uniquely you need to contribute there. And these are these moments that we listen to God. Does, some, does someone need to do something about that? Or with God's help and by God's grace, do I need to do something about that? So that's number two, shaped by a holy nudge. And then number three is that David's journey told a consistent story of God's faithfulness. David's journey told a consistent story of God's faithfulness. David continued by saying, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So you remember David, soon to be King David, goes up to currently King Saul and says something like, I'm going to fight this old boy. This is a very loose translation here. I'm going to fight this old boy. And Saul says, you can't win. To which David responds, of course I can win. I mean, I'm a shepherd. I don't go to seminars on killing bears. I actually kill bears. I kill lions that try to devour the sheep. I can win this thing. So what's David's point in all that? David is pointing out that this holy nudge is not crazy. It might be scary, but it's not crazy. I look at the story God has been writing in my life up until this point, and I realize this seems to fit pretty well. The man who defended the sheep against the lion will defend his people against the Philistine. That makes a certain amount of sense even if it's still scary. So David has seen God's provision in his life. God, David has seen God's protection in his life. He trusts that God will not abandon him now. He affirms that God is writing a coherent story in his life. God is doing something coherent in your life. God's been preparing him for what's next. God's been preparing him for this. And now it's time to take that scary step. As he prepares to take the scary step, Saul tries to convince him to dress like a warrior if he's going to go out and face Goliath. So David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk, and tried, emphasis on that word, and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. 
so he took them off. This is something about other people's expectations on us. Remember, David's journey is so shaped by one, that, that inner, the inner work, that deep love and connection and trust of God, and then listening to holy nudges and beginning to act on them as he realizes they're faithful to the story God's been writing in his life. And then other people come in and say, very well-intentioned, I think you should put on this armor. Now, I've never fought a six-cubit man to, to the death, but it does seem to me uh, basic mobility would be a plus. And David cannot move in the, in the armor. And so he does the very bold and obvious thing. He takes it off. Instead, he grabs a shepherd's staff, five stones out of a stream, and his sling. And he says, this is how I kill bears. I'm going to do it this way. David is actually able to say no to the expectations that other people put on him. Very well-intentioned expectations that other people put on him. Because his journey from shepherd to giant slayer, again, is, is premised on that solid foundation. That he runs his decisions uh, through chiefly one grid, which is, what would my king with a capital K say about this? And he does not look at the external appearance. What is Saul getting hung up on? The external appearance. We can't have a champion go out there who doesn't look like a champion, who looks like a, a shepherd who's half the size of a six-cubit man. David walks out, and we find out that his way worked out pretty well. He and Goliath exchanged some of the best trash talk in the whole Bible. I did not say the only trash talk in the whole Bible. I said some of the best trash talk in the whole Bible. And then David hits Goliath with a stone right between the eyes. The giant falls down dead. Israel celebrates. The Philistines flee. They did not keep up their end of the bargain. The Philistines flee. Which gets me to the last point, which is David's journey illustrates an overarching scriptural point, which is it matters who your champion is. David's journey illustrates the overarching scriptural point. It matters who your champion is. There are a lot of great stories and studies written about this passage about facing the giants in our lives. And that's a good thing. We do need to face the giants in our lives. But let's remember the overarching point of this part of the Bible is that the people are adrift without a king. The people are eager to unify behind one person and have that person fight their battles for them. This lines up with the overarching message of the Bible which is that we face a foe we cannot defeat. And we need a champion, what the Bible calls a wounded champion, to come and crush that ancient foe. In David and Goliath, God himself, in David and Goliath, through what David did, we see what God himself did in the life of Jesus the Christ, fully God and fully human. When God's people were being taunted by a giant they could not defeat, David stepped in and defeated the giant, letting the people celebrate in the victory. When you and I were being taunted by a giant we could not defeat, Jesus the Christ stepped in and defeated the giant that we might celebrate in the victory. The giants, according to the Bible, are sin and death. They are giants. They taunt us. They mock us. They mock God. Sin refers to rebelling against God, to pushing God away so that we can do things our way. 
And sin wreaks havoc in our lives. It wreaks havoc in our relationships. It separates us from God, and then it convinces us that God would never want us back. And death robs us of those we love. Death is that emphatic period at the end of every life, no matter how well lived. And so David and Goliath helps us see that Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, it helps us see Jesus in a different way. Jesus is the champion who triumphed over sin and triumphed over death, giving his followers the victory we could not earn on our own. Through his sacrificial love, his sacrificial death, his sacrificial resurrection, his unmatched power, he nailed sin to his own cross. He put death in his own grave. He hit them right between the eyes. And now they just limp along until that day they will lose all power over you and me. Jesus walks away the victor and invites you to share in the victory. And so this is why the last book of the Bible, Revelation 17, says this that they will wage war against the Lamb, they as the powers of this world. They will wage war against the Lamb. The Lamb is a, a symbol of Jesus. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. So the Lamb will triumph, and with Him will be His followers. It matters who your champion is. What if, as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, what if, as a follower of Jesus, the most important battle in your life is not yours to fight? What if it has already been fought and already been won? What if your job is to live in the victory, to celebrate in the victory, it matters who your champion is. It matters if in the days to come, you have a king that leads you and a king that fights for you, or if you and I do whatever we see fit because we have no king. So the question I want to ask you here at the beginning of volume four of the story is this. What does David's journey teach you about your own? What does David's journey teach you about your own? To start with the heart, with the unseen, sturdy foundation, to listen to God's holy nudges, as He brings people and opportunities into your path, as He convicts you deep in your soul, to remember God's faithfulness to you, and to take steps forward based on what God has done in your life. As the old preachers would say, to let your misery become your ministry. Ultimately, as David did, to find our greatest identity and victory in these words, it matters who your champion is. What does David's journey teach you about your own? Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. 
Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I pray for each person in our church family, each person gathered in our worship today, whether online, whether in the Y, for each one gathered, Lord. I pray that our lives will fit under that headline, God works in surprising ways. Lord, I pray that we will come to see the ways you are working in our lives, even the ways we didn't expect, that we didn't even know to ask for, that we may not even totally be sure how we feel about it. You work in surprising ways. And Lord, as we study your scripture, continue to change and mold us into people who love you and follow you. Lord, I pray in this time we might, maybe some of us for the first time, open our hearts and our minds to you and invite you in to be our king with a capital K, our champion who defeated the giants of our sin and death. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together.